Today's trending verse. Okay, it's not me testing. One, two. We'll get there eventually. Just take a break. Anybody need coffee? Do I have 20 bucks? I wasn't expecting that question. The coffee's free. What do you want 20 bucks for? Just want 20 bucks? So do I. Do you, do you know what inflation is doing right now? I mean, 20 bucks is the old five bucks. I mean, it's tough. Um, all right, now I'm on. Thank you very much. Actually, it's kind of a fun morning this morning since we didn't get off to a real smooth spark. I just want to pause for a second. Don't normally make announcements. Um, but I want you to welcome some friends of mine that are here this morning. We just became friends this past month. Bruce and Martha, Bruce and Martha are back here. Today is their 50th wedding anniversary, and they came to church. They're going out to dinner right afterwards, so I probably should give the 20 bucks to them. <laughs> Just so you don't order eggs. You can get steak cheaper than eggs right now, so enjoy that. But that's, isn't that great? 50 years together. And then, um, I don't even know if Josh knows this, because he, he can't obviously chat on the live stream um, the way I do on Sunday mornings during service, uh, but Josh's pawpaw, his grandfather, is a pastor up in East Texas. I don't remember the exact location, but he's off work today. He's not preaching. He's on our live stream watching his grandson lead worship because he had surgery, and I reassured him that we would be praying for him this morning as he recovers from his surgery, and while he's watching us, um, if if he hadn't turned me off, it's really hard for pastors to watch other pastors. We get, we, we get real nervous and, and real jittery. And so just say a real quick prayer. I don't even know his name. I, just, I only know him by his papa. So just say a real quick prayer for papa who's recovering from surgery and his church, because that means they have a guest speaker this morning. It's just fun to be together. We will reboot the message now. Do you need to hear the bumper again or are we good? All right. Because I know Bruce and Martha want to go to lunch, and so we want to keep it on track. As we look at popular verses, we'll find an affinity to those verses because the reason so many people are searching for them and the reason they float and become the top trending verses is because it's speaking to people's needs. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. I remember as a pastor when this verse became popular. It was pretty obscure. No one really even knew what this verse was. You didn't ever hear people talk about it. Most of us had never taught it. Um, this is probably 20 years ago, about two decades ago. And then the next thing you know, literally in one year, this verse starts showing up on T-shirts. It starts showing up on plaques. Many of you probably have a plaque or a card or a note that somebody gave you at some point in time. And it's got Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 on it because it speaks to the heart of hope. It speaks to the, the very depth of what God does for us as we anticipate the future. But the great thing about Jeremiah chapter 29, and it's not just fluff, it's not just, it's not just a postcard or, or a poster, it is, it is the reality of how God gives us hope in the most difficult moments. Jeremiah chapter 29 is a conflicted passage of Scripture. 
I don't know how you determine the markers of what's ahead, what's in the future, whether, you're, whether you're, that marker is the financial situation. Maybe you're looking at gross domestic property um, and maybe you're looking at the tax rate or you're looking at interest rates on loans. You, maybe you're doing it financially. Maybe you're watching and you're chronicling and you're using markers like your children's age or what grade they're going to be in. I don't know what markers you use, but the markers for the future in Jeremiah chapter 29 are all horrible for the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel has been conquered. They have been forced out of their homeland. They were invaded and as a part of the invasion, they have been taken back to Babylon. This is as bad as it can get. They are prisoners of war in a foreign country and in a foreign city. And the fluff preaching happens in Jeremiah 29 because there are prophets, so-called self-named, self-proclaimed prophets, that are going around to the people saying, don't worry about it. It's, it's going to be okay. We're not going to be here that long. We get, we get to go back soon. Well, the true prophets have been preaching for years, decades, that that wasn't going to be the case. That when they went into exile, they were going into exile not because they were simply prisoners of a foreign invasion, but they were going into exile because God had lifted his protection and said, as a nation, you need to be disciplined. You need to be reminded of who your true king is. You need to be reminded of where your true source of hope, security, and purpose, and identity, and meaning is. And so this is a divine act that has put them into exile. And anything except quick and easy is going to dispel this. Literally two generations will live and die while in exile. They will never go home. They will never be buried in their home or in their family plots. They will, they will never see the economy of their prosperous nation as they once did before. They will never be reunited with friends, possibly not even reunited with family. They will never worship in the temple that they loved so deeply. They will never be a part of the religious community and the faithfulness of what they had experienced in Jerusalem. Their life is horrible. And the truth of Jeremiah chapter 29 is an actual interesting study. I used to teach a conference on urban transitions for churches um, based on this passage of scripture. Because the true prophets are not trying to give them this sort of temporary, oh yeah, it's gonna be okay. This is all gonna be over with in just a minute. It's not gonna be over with in just a minute. And the true prophets say, look, this this is your plan. Your plan is you need to settle down. You need, you need to build houses. Who wants to build a house in a place you don't want to live? I mean, at best, you're looking for leases that are only measured by days, maybe weeks, not even months. You're definitely not planning on building a house that you're going to sustain long term. The true prophets, the true word of God was saying, not only do you need to build houses and settle in, but you need to plant crops You need to plan on your sustenance being a part of this new life because you're not going back and it's going to be a long time before anyone goes back. You will go back, but potentially not even in your own lifetime will you do that. You need to plant crops. 
You need to establish businesses. You need to become a part of this new economy in Babylon instead of the economy of Jerusalem, of Jerusalem and of Israel because you're, you're here for a while. The, the whole passage, the whole chapter is worth reading this afternoon and taking a look at it because the whole passage is how we receive messages and directions and inspiration from God in difficult circumstances that we don't want to be. We don't want to be in those difficult circumstances. The worst part is yet to come. God says to the people, you must pray for this city. Imagine that. Imagine being a prisoner of war in a foreign country. You hate the people. You hate the government. You hate the location. You hate the territory. You hate it geographically. There is nothing you like about it. And you grew up in a systemic system that actually told you to hate them because they are heathens. They are pagans. They don't know your God. They don't know the one true God. And now you're being told to pray for them. Imagine your worst enemy, and imagine me telling you, you know what, you need to pause for just a moment, put the coffee down, put your Bible down, and pray for that person. Jesus would exemplify this and take us to a whole new level when he comes as the Messiah. They are told not only just to pray, but they are told to bless that city. They are told to make a positive impact. They are told to make an inspirational impact on their city. This is almost a a, a picture of the Jonah story in the Old Testament. You are to bless, you are to inspire, you are to help lead, just like our mission statement, inviting others into a life-changing relationship with Jesus, one conversation at a time. That mission statement seems easy if we're talking about a neighbor that you like. It seems easy if we're talking about a grandchild that you love and care for. It seems easier if it's a colleague or a coworker you're working with who's asked you why you go to church. But imagine if now you're called by God to have that conversation about life-changing relationships with Jesus with people you despise. You literally hate them with all your heart. And they are not your bosses. They are your captors. You have no choice. And yet God says, bless this city. And then he creates this parallel that reminds them of the hope For if this city, Jeremiah prophesied, if this city prospers, you will prosper. Jeremiah chapter 29 is the clearest explanation in Scripture of being an active and vibrant testimony of the life change experienced in Jesus in any environment, and especially in environments we don't like or enjoy. This is the clearest picture of the opportunity to share Jesus in an environment where we don't even want them to be saved. That was Jonah's problem. He was called of God to go to a city and he didn't want to, he didn't like that city and he even tells God in the honesty of his prayers, which is the beautiful part of scripture is it teaches us over and over again, we can be absolutely honest with God. Even if we're absolutely wrong, we can be honest in our error with God. And Jonah flat out tells God, I don't want them to know you. I don't want them to be blessed. I don't want them in eternity. I don't want to stand next to them in heaven. 
And so I'm not gonna go. God has a way of accomplishing his plans. And Jonah ends up going, and yes, the whole city of Nineveh becomes followers, believers in the one true God. God wants to work in our lives, and our situation is not what dictates how that work happens. And that's the somewhat horrific picture of Jeremiah 29, verse 11, which is the only encouraging words in the whole chapter. It's the only thing most of us ever really want to hear. And you have to know that to step into an acknowledgement of God's plan for us and realize there is a plan because sometimes the chaos of difficult circumstances, one of the things we begin to doubt is that God's still in control. And that's why you memorize Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, and that's why you put it on a plaque, and that's why you put it up in your kitchen or on your refrigerator or on your kitchen table. That's why you put it somewhere to remind you that God says, for I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans to give you a future Plans to give you a hope. You will call to me and you will come to me and you will pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. I know the plans I have for you. Look at that first part of verse 11. He says, I know the plans. He is aware We are never outside of the attention of God. Attention seems so difficult to us because we're so limited as humans. We're so limited as creation. But God's not limited as creator. We we have all kinds of difficulties. I I have troubles hearing sometimes. The tinnitus, the ringing in my ears all the time. And somebody will say something and I simply just won't hear it. Or I'll hear it but I don't recognize it. And so uh, there have been times, and it just, it horrifies me because I love people, and I love being around people, and if somebody calls out, pastor, I want, I want to respond to that. Although I was visiting a church as a part of our building team, we looked at a number of churches all across the city, all across the region, and, um, and it, was, it was kind of a knee-jerk reaction, but I heard a kid yell out across the, the, across the lobby of that church, and it was an expansive lobby, atrium area, and I heard a kid yell out, Pastor, and I like turned around like, what, what, what? Then I realized, oh, he's not talking to me, he's talking to Stephen, the pastor of that church who's standing next to me. I, but I want to. I want to hear. See, we're limited. How many times do we get frustrated because somebody's busy and we want their attention, we want to talk to them, we want, to, we want them to listen to us, but they're, they're occupied or they're preoccupied. That never happens with God. God says, I know the plans I have for you. I, I know them. I am aware of you. And that's what that means. I am aware of you. I know your situation. He's telling these exiles, he's telling these people who are so unhappy as prisoners of war in a foreign city, I, I know, I know you, I know where you're at, I know what's going on, but I know the plans I have for you. And then he qualifies those plans. He says, these are, these are plans for your well-being. 
Just because our situation's horrible, it doesn't mean that God has forgotten. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care what happens to us. He knows his plans for us, and he wants those plans to be for our benefit, for our well-being. It is sometimes a difficult stretch of faith to recognize and acknowledge that God wants the best for me. He loves me. He cares for me. The parent analogy in the New Testament is so clear because parents have to discipline. Parents have to put their kids in circumstances where the kid is uncomfortable because the parent wants the best for the kid. They want it for their well-being. God just says the same thing. I know you. I know exactly where you're at. I know the plans I have for you. And those plans are plans for your well-being. I have your best interest in my heart. He said, those are plans for a future. God knows what's ahead. And he's planning that. He's aware of that. And he wants to accomplish that. And he wants to do that in our lives. He has a future for us. It's not a plan that's done spur of the moment. Contingency thinking is great. Strategically understanding and recognizing the situation and what you're in and being prepared for any quick action, quick decisions is good. But God is a planner. God is strategic. God is tactical in the way he deals with his creation. He knows the plans he has for us. Those are plans for well-being and they're plans for our future. I don't know the future. I, I don't know. I have to look at a clock that tells me exactly what time it is in this moment. I can't predict even the very next moment. And it feels like sometimes, like a Sunday morning, you feel like you're on a countdown timer and then the numbers are decreasing and in a few minutes the red numbers are gonna come up and start increasing. You feel like you're on a time schedule. You feel like you've got all these things taking place, pressuring you, and you've got this responsibility and then you feel alone, like it's just applicable to you. And yet God knows and God knows the future. He knows exactly what's going to take place, not just in this moment, but in the future. I love the way Jesus says this, and we will deal with this actually next week, when Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I mean, how true, what a proverbial statement for us to live by. I've got enough things I've got to deal with today. I don't need to add tomorrow onto my list. And one of the reasons I don't have to add tomorrow onto my list is because God knows. He knows what my future is. He knows what he wants to accomplish. And that future, according to this passage of Scripture, according to what God is saying, is one of hope. I have hope. Every marker in my life, whatever it is that I'm looking at, whatever it is that I'm experiencing, every marker can show a trend line that leads to disaster. But the one marker that overrules every other marker in my life is that God has a plan, God knows my future, and God wants to give me hope. Whatever that future is, it's based on God's compassion and grace, and that creates hope. So that even death for a believer, even death for a follower of Christ becomes something to anticipate and look forward to. That doesn't mean it's all gonna be perfect. It's all gonna always be easy. But it means that God's there. 
He's in the middle of it and he knows what's going on. And when I don't know what's going on, I don't need to be overwhelmed with worry and anxiety because he does. And he has a plan for me. And that plan is one that looks at my future, desires my well-being, and is hope for me. But ironically, this doesn't give us the license to sit back then and say, all right, God's got a plan. It's for my best interest. He knows what he's doing. He understands it all. I have no responsibility because verse 12 creates a process by which we live in a unique tension with God to understand and see that hope fulfilled. He says this in verse 12, you will call to me, I'm adding in the words so so it makes sense along the way. You will come to me. You will pray to me. You will seek me. God loves us so much that he wants the difficult circumstances to motivate and propel us to be closer to him. He wants us to interact with him. He calls us to make choices and decisions to be with him and to know him and to understand him. I want you to call to me. I want you to come to me. I want you in my presence. I want you to pray to me. Ask me about my life. Ask me about your future. Let's talk about it. I want you to seek me. Look for me. How much we desperately want that kind of attention. We, we want the, it, the object of our love to respond and know. When Carrie and I were dating, she was still in college. Actually, she was in high school. Um, but even back then, they had rules about older guys being on campus. And so I couldn't do it there. But once she made it to college... I I would do all these things to ambush her. I would go put notes on her car, tell her I was thinking about her, ask her to give me a call. You know, I would do all these different things. I would wait. I knew what time she got off work. And I would wait in the parking lot and wait till she came out the back door in the back of the mall in the isolated and secluded area. Yeah, I know what you're thinking right now. Oh my gosh. Pastor's a stalker. <laughs> we didn't think it was stalking back then. It was more like just being kind of love crazed. But to, by today's standards, yes, I confess. When it came to Carrie, okay, I confess. Even today, I still wait for her. I still, I still go to some place I know she's at and wait till she comes out and and then stop her. Hey, you want to go get an iced tea? I was always, she was the object of my love. She was the object of my affection. She was the object of the entirety of my heart. And all I wanted to do was create scenarios where I was with her. I drove all night from Las Cruces, New Mexico to San Angelo, Texas, because she was a student at Angelo State University, so that I could be waiting that morning when she came out of the dorm and convince her to ditch class and spend the day with me. She was a four point, I think she was actually over four points. Um, She had 10 points from my perspective. Um, She went ahead and went to class, but I still waited because all I wanted to do was be with her. Okay, now it's not near as graphic as you're thinking. I wanted to go to breakfast. I wanted to have a cup of coffee and I wanted to talk. 
I wanted to spend the afternoon, if you've ever been in San Angelo, I don't know if it's still true today, especially with the drought from this past year. I wanted, I wanted to spend the afternoon just walking the river. It had some of the most beautiful flowers. It had some of the greatest counter lilies I've ever seen along the river in the walkways in downtown San Angelo. I just wanted to spend the afternoon walking with her. I just wanted to be with her. Now, that to some degree, even if it creeps you out a little bit, um, it, you know, that to some degree makes sense. And yet here God's saying, hey, this plan I have for you, this well-being that I have for you, the future I have for you, this hope I have for you, I want you to experience it in relationship with me. So give me a call. Come and be with me. Pray to me. Seek me. And then I love the purpose that God finds in that. You will find me in verse 13. It doesn't mean God is like obsessed with some kind of divine or supernatural um, hide and seek. He just loves you. He loves me so deeply that he wants to be with us. He created us so we could be with him. He saved us so we could be with him. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross provided forgiveness. Jesus' resurrection on that Sunday morning provided the intimacy of relationship, built-in power, conquering death, conquering circumstances, conquering the things that separate us, conquering sin so that we could be in relationship. God has done everything throughout millennials He has done everything from beyond the existence of anything in the very darkness and void of non-creation. God has been doing everything just so he could spend the afternoon with you. It's all he wants. He wants us to call and to come and to pray and to seek. And when we do, he promises to find him. Now, to our Jewish friends in exile, prisoners of war in Babylon, that seems impossible. Because guess what? There are no Jewish synagogues. There are no Jewish temples at this point in Babylon. Put it today's terms, they have just been taken to a city against their will that they don't want to be at. And by the way, there are no churches in that town. So grasp this for just a second. If you think the only time you can be with, church, with God is in church, they didn't have a church to go to. Imagine a circumstance where you don't have a church to go. You are now faced with the only possibility of being in relationship with God, being in relationship with him one-on-one. Now, that's nothing against churches. We have the blessing of churches. We have the dynamic energy and experience of being able to come together, see one another, and we're doing all of it so that as a group, as a gathered group of people, we have the opportunity to be with God. He's not hiding from us in a negative way because when we seek him, we find him. He wants to be with us. Our circumstances, our, our difficulties are not outside of his presence. Then he simply closes and says, search for me with all your heart. He just wants to know that we love him. He initiated the love he, he said to us, I love you. He just wants to hear you say, I love you too. If you want to get into a back and forth with God, I love you too, I love you more, I love you more, I love you. Over the, I mean, do it. Because you will never do anything, 
You will never be anything and you will never be anywhere that's outside of the ability of God to say, I love you. Jesus' death made that possible. Jeremiah 29, 11 is a great passage of scripture. I have it in my desk drawer. My dad, at a time when he was not particularly spiritual, saw it, thought of me, thought of all the decisions that he thought I had made incorrectly to live a life that wouldn't accomplish the things that should be, by most people's standards, accomplished. In other words, prosperity and things like that that don't come with ministry. He sent me this rock a few years ago and said, you made the right decisions. You're living a great life, and I support you. And that rock sits inside the drawer of my desk, so when I pull it out, I can see it. Because just like you, I need to know God has a plan for me. And that plan is for my well-being. And that plan is for my future, and that plan is one that gives me hope. And so I'm going to every day, every moment, call on him, come to him, pray to him, seek him, knowing that I can find him. I've given my whole heart and whole life to search for him. And I meet him every day, anywhere. That's the hope of the message of Jesus. God wants to know us. And we have that opportunity through Jesus. Father, thank you for loving us this much. It's kind of amazing to me, even as I think about it this morning, and all the different things everyone in this room, everyone on live stream is going through. It's just a tough time. And it's been a tough time, and it's weary, and it's difficult, and it's hard. But yet you know it. You know everything that's going on. And not just nationally or in that respect, as true as that is, but you know what's happening personally. You know conversations that happened last night that were hurtful and created pain. You, you know situations that caused us to wake up this morning anxious and uncertain and, and not sure what to do. You, you, know, you know to the very most intimate detail of the infliction of pain on our hearts and yet you're still there saying, I want to know you. I want to be with you. I want to help you. I, I have a plan for your life. I have a future for you. I have hope for you. So even as a group, we just pause and say, we come to you, we search you, we love you with all of our hearts. And we'll find you. And we'll know you. And we'll be with you not just for the rest of our lives, but forever. There is no story that ends happily ever after as beautiful and as deep and as true as the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we trust you. Forgive us of our sins. Come and live in our lives. And let's spend eternity together. Thank you. Jesus.